Good morning, Neighborhood Bible Church. Let's, uh, let's hope that's a, not just a cute song that we sing, that we're, we're not here just to sing, but that we're here to live out what we know. And uh, as you can tell, we have a large congregation of young people as they all leave. <laughs> we don't want to bore them too much, I guess. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 13. That's where we'll be this morning. And um, I'm really excited about uh, just some of the things the Lord's put on my heart. And um, it's a challenging passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. And uh, we'll see, uh, we'll kind of see where it takes us. Well, now that the kids are gone, uh, I'm going to show you a couple slides. <laughs> uh, that could go all different directions, but here's where I'm going with that. Um, you know, uh, most people, if you, if you think about, if you think about, um, what a lot of conversation is about, a lot of, a lot of things in culture talk about, um, is relationships, you know, and just how we relate to one another, how we get along and whatnot. Um, there's a, a few kids here had some, they were asked some different questions and, and here's just a sampling of them, but here was one, what do most people do on a date? Mike, age 10, says on the first date, they'll just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. Here's another one. Uh, how do you make a person fall in love with you? A nine-year-old said, don't do things like have smelly green sneakers. You might get attention, but attention ain't the same thing as love. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. Here's another one. Uh, when is it okay to kiss someone? Callie, age nine, said, never kiss in front of other people. It's a big, embarrassing thing if anybody sees you. But if nobody sees you, I might be willing to try it with a handsome boy, but just for a few hours. <laughs> here's, what, here's what little Jim had to say on that subject. You should never kiss a girl unless you have enough bucks to buy her a big ring and her, her own VCR. Most of us are old enough to know what a VCR is in this room because she'll want to have videos of the wedding. That's, that's a good tip there. Thanks, buddy. How do you make love endure? Eight-year-old, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take the trash out. <laughs> And last one on the question of whether it's better to be single or married. Kenny says, it gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. <laughs> well, sometimes, uh, sometimes kids have a way of just cutting through stuff and be able to, to lay it out there and, and, and tell things like it is. Um, this morning, the, the passage we're going to look at uh, in John chapter 13 is really about displaying love and showing love. And uh, if, you were to, if you were to go on a search, a quest, and say, I want to find out information on this, you could go to some cute kids and get some of their input. But there's a lot of people who have a lot of different ideas on how you express love and how you show love is and, and all that kind of stuff. And we're going to kind of dive into some of that. Um, isn't it true that some people never grow up in love? I mean, some of the things that we just read are not far off from some of the relational troubles of some people you know. <laughs> uh, because realistically, they're just a little bit skewed from what some of those kids were saying. And uh, if we're honest, we probably look at it and realize that uh, even if we're married and have been married for a while, uh, we have a long way to grow in the area of love, in the area of relationships. And relationships are ever-evolving. And so uh, right about the time you, you think you have someone figured out, they go and do something that's totally out of their character, and there's a new part of them that you discover. And Obviously, marriage is, is, a, is a journey along those same lines. And um, this morning, what we're going to do is look to the scriptures and see what the scriptures have to say about showing love. And uh, <clears throat> John chapter 13, I just want to read verse 1 for you, and you can kind of follow along with me. <clears throat> but it says, uh, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So that's kind of the overarching heading of where this scene that's going to play out is going, is that he is showing his disciples the full extent of his love. This whole series that we've been in is, is called uh, Decent Exposure. And it's taking a look at Christ because Jesus is the bodily form of God. And, and in Jesus, we get to see what would God value? What would God hate? What would God be doing with his time if he were here on earth? And as we look to the Gospels, that's why it's so important to stay in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is just look there and read and soak in that. And let that begin to inform how your words come out even. 
If we're disciples, if we're followers of Christ, it means that we're following after a pattern set for us, an example set for us by Christ. And this passage we're going to read this morning is really, really popular. It's a, it's a famous passage, and some get a lot of attention and some don't. But just because something's popular or, um, or famous doesn't mean that it's easy or doesn't mean that it's really popular to do, per se. And I'll just say at the start of this that I've been really humbled as I've been studying this week because I realize I've failed this week in a million different ways in what we're about to talk about. So I just want to, in case you don't know me, many of you in this room know who I am, but for those of you who don't know me, I am very much speaking as a fellow journeyer on, on this path with you. And I even had a head start this week in knowing what I was going to be convicted about on Sunday. And I'm preaching this to myself as much as anyone else. But as you go along, you just sit there and realize it's by the grace of God that, that, that he's going to allow me to, to grow in this area of showing love and of being a servant. Jesus showing it means that he revealed it. So once again, we would be helpless in the ways of love. How do you show love? Honestly, we'd be helpless. We'd go to love songs, maybe. We'd go to some poems. We'd go with what's in our heart, which on any given moment can change. Uh, we might go to some books. There's a thousand and one books written on the subject. But who really knows? And here it is Jesus saying, I've revealed it to you. I've showed you exactly what it is to, to display love. And he's also modeled it for us. I have this graphic on here of gender Jesus and in the subtitle, is just redefining greatness. And I think that's what Jesus does here. I want to basically give you a little bit of a backdrop to the story that we're, that we're talking about. Remember, these are the guys that he's been with for almost three years now, and, and things are ramping up. We've been talking about this as we've gone along, that, that the disciples have been with him, and they've walked with him, and they've, they've journeyed with him. They've you know, eaten meals together and just spent long hours doing ministry together. They've seen some miraculous things go on with this Jesus. And here they are at this, at this meal, and they're, they're together, and um, they sense that some things are happening. This whole idea of the hour has now come. Remember that? That Jesus is talking in the present tense now, that, that, that his time had come and, and all of that. But here's some background to them. While, while Jesus is about to display for them what it looks like to be a servant leader, I'll tell you what was on the hearts and minds of the disciples is this question here. Who is the greatest? Luke chapter 9 records them arguing over this fact. Jesus is with his disciples. The kids are okay. That's Ben shouting, but they're just doing junior high things. Um, who's the greatest? That was the question on their minds. And they were bickering about it and arguing about it. You can read for yourself in Luke chapter 9. It must have grieved the heart of, of Jesus to know that was going on. And then there's a, a great story in Matthew 20. I just think of this assertive mom. And I was a youth pastor for a lot of years. And uh, the way that parents view a youth group is I view a group shot of a lot of different kids and faces, a lot of needs to be met. I'll tell you how, how people view a youth group. They view it just like this. One kid. This kid matters right here. And things should revolve around that kid. And there are some parents who come and they want to know everything about their kid. And here's mom. Listen to, listen to this Jewish mom coming up to Jewish Jesus saying this. She, she, she comes up with a request. Jesus says this. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. She has two boys and she wants to make sure they have the best seat in the house. Not just can you pick one of them to sit at your side, but I want one on one side and one on the other. You pick, but make sure it's my two boys. And, and so... It's basically that the disciples are probably only acting out what was modeled to them, right? Who's the greatest? You know what? You and I have inherited that same mindset. We just have. It's called a sin nature. And I want to know who's the greatest. And, and belying that question or built within that question is this. Maybe most of you in this room don't care to be first. You don't care to be the greatest. You don't care to have your name in lights. But I'll tell you what is underneath that question is this. Who's the least? I at least don't want to be last. Put me in the middle somewhere. Put me in the upper middle class. But don't make me last. So you have disciples arguing about who the greatest is. You have moms coming along and saying, you know, come with me, boys. You know, and they're like asking Jesus for this, for this thing. And Jesus comes along. And in that setting, okay, that's the picture of where we're at. 
he starts to talk about some different things. Here's why I know this isn't foreign to us. CBD is, is Christian book distributors. It's a huge online resource. It'd be like going to Berean and kind of gathering some different titles. But I did a quick search on the word uh, leadership. You know how many hits came up for leadership books at CBD? 2,233. Everyone wants to be a leader. Everyone wants to learn how to be a leader, how to grow the leader within you, how to become the best leader you can be. Anyone can be a leader. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Here's, here's how many hits came up with the word servant. 586. Just topics of servanthood and followership. And those aren't quite as popular. They don't sell quite as well. Now, contrast that with the New Testament. This is going on BibleGateway.com, just punching in. Any one of you, if you have the Internet, has a great Bible program without even purchasing. It's called BibleGateway.com. You can go to multiple versions. You can go to commentaries. You can do keyword searches, all kinds of stuff. Go to BibleGateway.com, use the NIV translation, and type in the word leader. You know how many times leader shows up in the NIV in the New Testament? Fifteen. One, five. After that, clear that. Type in the word servant. You know how many times? One, five, zero. One hundred and fifty. See how it's just exactly turned on its head of what's out there in culture? So the reality is that you and I have a lust for leadership and prominence and ambition. It's inherited. It's hardwired into us. And frankly, we have a disdain for being last place. We just do. And that's why we can say with some level of certainty that everyone in this room on some level is selfish. And we're battling that. We're saying, Lord, rid us of that. Because we've gone down that path of me being in charge, me being able to get anything I want. We don't want that. We reject that. We've given that up. We've given up lordship of our life and given it to you. But it's a daily battle for every single one of us. Some of you saw the movie Wally. Remember Wally? You know what Wally was programmed to do? Clean up and serve. That was his job. He went out, grabbed trash, compacted it, stacked it in neat little things, went off and did it again. You know what? None of us are hardwired that way. Wouldn't it be easy if just the second you became a Christian, boom, that just became no longer a struggle? But that's not the truth of it, is it? None of us are hardwired to serve, that's for sure. Jesus knew that nothing destroys community quicker than pride. And so imagine him walking along and hearing and knowing his disciples arguing about who the greatest is. And even if you weren't involved in that argument, imagine there's 12 and three guys are over there arguing about who the greatest is, naturally assuming it's one of them three. You didn't say a word in the argument. You're still ticked off. It just starts to tear apart and shred this, this little community of faith that Jesus has been working on. Enter the master teacher. Enter the servant. I guess in our day you could say enter the janitor, right? Just that, that low position. Read with me John chapter 13, now starting in verse 2, and we'll just kind of read this, this scene here a little bit. It says, The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. That's extreme Peter, right? None of it. But you have to have it. Then all of it. Watch Jesus' response. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. And then John adds his commentary to that. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he said he, he, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things 
You will be blessed if you do them. So there's the scene played out for us. And in this scene, we see Jesus displaying, putting on display, revealing to us a serving God. This is what God is like, and God doesn't change. Now, any good Bible scholar knows you need to look at things in context, and you need to take this one act of service, and you need to kind of pull the the camera lens out a little bit and think of it more in in a broader context. And Jesus doing this one act of service, this one scene of service, probably one of many that John happens to record here for a very specific purpose in his gospel, is in the greater context of a a lot of service, really a life of service. Think about the incarnation. The incarnation is simply that God limited himself and put on human flesh and became a, a, a person. In the fact that Jesus came to earth and left his rightful throne, he was humbly serving mankind. Think about the fact of washing feet. The washing feet was this chore. Basically, you're laying around a table, you're reclining, we're not sitting how we do like in our day and age, and so feet back in the Old Testament and New Testament times were smelly, just like feet are smelly now. You know, it's a dusty culture, all of that. And there's this chore kind of lingering in the room. Everyone knows it needs to be done. There's no lowest slave that's there to do it. And just like situations in our own home... There's a chore lingering. And people are thinking, I'm not going to do it. And then Jesus must have just horrified them all by taking up the towel and doing it himself. And Peter, as the, as the story records, is the first to kind of blurt out what most everyone there must have been thinking. Like, what are you doing? This is horrible. But Jesus doing this unwanted chore was in the context of him being a humble servant to people. He came to earth in the incarnation because he loved us. He got up to wash his disciples' feet because he loved them. He wanted to show them the full extent of his love. And then finally, think about his sacrificial death on a cross. You know why he did that? Because he loved us. And that was actually a humble act of service. And he willingly went and did that. This one scene here in John 13, in some ways, kind of dramatizes Jesus' whole ministry and life in a little microcosm picture. I started with the birth of Jesus, washing of feet, the death of Jesus. Everything in between was this loving, serving, humble God. And it's so foreign, it's so different than a God we would have made up. It's so different and so foreign to people who hear this story today and go, that doesn't make any sense. And we say, I know, but there's power in this good news in this gospel. As you think about him washing the disciples' feet, it's made all the more remarkable because of a couple of things he knows. One is he knows that his hour had come. He knew he was returning back to the Father. A second thing he knows that is recorded for us in verse verse 3 is that all things had been put under his authority. And then it says, so he got up and did this act of service. Not, and in light of that, he still got up and did this, but... All things had been put under his authority, so he got up and showed them the full extent of his love by washing their feet. The third thing he knew that was remarkable in that he continued with this was he knew who would betray him. And that betrayal must have felt as personal, as intimate, just because you're Jesus and you're divine doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But think about one of your closest inner inner circle people betraying you the way that, that, that Judas was to betray. And Jesus had foreknowledge of that. And he still went around and washed Judas' feet. I put a quote in your, in your handout this morning. It says, love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for your own life to enrich the life of another. You think about Christ. I think Christ embodied that statement perhaps more than any other person ever. Actually, not perhaps. He just did. He embodied that, and he showed it ultimately in his death, but there were a thousand little deaths leading up to that where he willingly took his own self and emptied himself. Now, there's a problem when we start talking about feet and towels and servants today because we just don't live in a culture that has this same kind of a thing. And so um, Jesus asked this question, do you understand what I have done for you? And I think that's a good question for us as we talk about this and think about feet and think about all of this stuff. 
We have to ask a couple of basic probing questions, and there's a thousand more you could talk about. Your community groups can kind of dive into this at a deeper level. But here are just a few off the top of my head. How did Jesus expect us to follow him in this? Was Jesus, for instance, giving us a principle to follow, or was he actually instituting a practice that we should follow? If it's a practice, what it means is that when you come to church, we all ought to strip down, have a towel around us, and get, get washing, right? Most of us would say, no, we... We don't think it was a practice that he was saying for us to do, but rather that principle of, of being willing to and getting up off your duff and taking that lowest servant's role and serving. Maybe he means that we're all to be employed at the lowest part in our company and we should never, ever advance. Go and seek out employment always at the lowest level. I mean, these are the questions that come up and then you just look at that and dive in and say, well, is that what he was talking about? I think the easy way out is to say, well, we're supposed to be willing to take a low servant's role, but we never have to actually do it. <laughs> that would be kind of a light reading of this, right? That would be missing verse 17 that says, now, you, now that you know these things, guess what? You're responsible for them in, in essence. You'll be blessed if you do them. So it's not enough to have our ears tickled here. It's not enough to sing a great worship song. Fill us up and send us out. We must go to, to feed the hungry and stand beside the broken. What a powerful, moving song that is. We serve a God of justice. But then to walk out, we're blessed if we do that. I love this song because it says, keep us from just singing about it. God forbid that we would come and discuss these great ideas on Sunday morning. And then they'd have zero impact on our marriages Sunday night that we'd go to work and, and be exactly the same person as we were before we heard it. No, Jesus says you're blessed if you go and do these things. Now that you know this, now just go and live it. Go and do it. And therein lies the challenge. Therein lies the requirement, the, the absolute need we have on the Spirit of God in us to conquer this thing. Because otherwise we'll serve ourselves. I know I will. I've led and been a, been a part of as a person who's been in church most of my life, I've been a part of several foot-washing ceremonies. And um, I remember teaching in, in uh, middle school one time at Las Gales Christian way back in the day, and the entire, the entire time I was teaching, I was washing this kid's foot. And, you know, the junior hires, I don't know if they heard a word I said, but they remembered me washing that foot. And the thing is, is that we could do that right here. I could have someone up, and I could wash their feet but it always falls a little bit flat in a comfortable church, doesn't it? And frankly, most of you showered and put your nice little clean foot into a relatively clean sock. Unless you're a junior high boy, then <laughs> it was a dirty sock. But, um, but you know, your, your, your feet don't even have the same, you know, muster that these guys probably had at the time. I've been a part of two foot washings in my entire life that were utterly meaningful because they were, they were not staged in this same way. The first one happened, I don't know, I guess it was probably last year, but it was at, it was at Tegan's preschool. And um, I was there helping out in the class one day. And the, the, the project was that you take your foot, you dip it in some paint, and we were, we were stamping their feet on, and then they were cutting it out. It was like a Mother's Day thing or something or other. And my job was to take them, put their foot in the paint, put it down, and then I was washing it off. And uh, what was so great about that is you had a room full of preschoolers, and a lot of times it's the moms that work in the class and not the dads, and so here's some strange guy, you know. And just touching feet, and that, it's kind of an intimate, weird thing. It's different than normal, everyday stuff, right? It's not shaking hands or high-fiving someone. And so what happened was, as I'm sitting here washing these feet, it was meaningful because there was an actual job to be done. And as I'm sitting here washing feet, you know what I began to realize? If you do it unto the least of these, you're doing it unto me. And I'm washing these little children's feet, and they're giggling, and they're kind of laughing, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of trying to make them feel comfortable, and we're, we're talking and stuff, and I'm having to wash out their toes and stuff, and a little toe jam in there. But I'm washing these feet off, and I'm just thinking, man, this is a precious little gift of God to someone. And it just kind of hit me in this weird little way, like how fun to meaningfully get to wash some feet and not stage it. And there was a little bit of uncomfortableness to it, to the kids and, and to me, there was a second one that, that went on, and that was in Mexico. Now, Mexico is a super dusty, dirty place. We're having a meeting today, by the way, right after service for um, August 8th through 15th. We're taking a crew down. Jonathan and, and Bertha Hurley and child number one are going to lead the trip. 
And, um, and we're going to go down and, and work with orphans down in, in Rosarito. And, uh, and we're just really praying about this trip and, and seeing what the Lord has for us. But there was a group of people that, um, that I used to go with down to Mexico, and, and they would, a, a part of their thing, uh, all these construction families kind of got together, and they're like, let's go start building. This was years ago. They were from Santa Cruz Bible. They said, we know how to build stuff. People in Mexico need stuff built. Let's go meet a need. Well, the wives of, of them would come, and they kind of wanted a project. So what they started doing years ago was they started going to companies and places in the U.S. and asking for brand-new shoes. They said, we just want shoes galore. Would you just give us shoes? So they started getting shoes, and by the time that, that I joined up with them, um, they had been at it several years now, and this is a cropped-down picture, but these are all brand-new pairs of shoes donated by people in the U.S. And pretty soon what happens is, as you go across the border, every trunk and extra space in a bus is shoved, crammed full with glad bags full of shoes. And so we'd go and, and bring these shoes, and here's the, it feels like the whole community comes out and lines up, because they get to have a brand new pair of shoes. One of the things you realize as you meet with kids, you see them day after day after day for about six days straight. By about the third day, because you're a little dense like me, you realize, man, they haven't changed clothes or shoes at all. And it smells like it. And it looks like it. And they have one pair of shoes, and they're done. <laughs> they're, they're ready to be changed. And so these mostly wives is what it started off, but then it just kind of grew They'd bring baby wipes and just take people from the village and slip their shoe off and, and size them. They'd bring those little sizer things and get them just the right shoe. And here's the little girl's section. Here's the boy's section. Here's the men's section. And they'd just get to sit there and, and wash feet of people from this town was a powerful picture. And as you're sitting here sizing kids up, what you realize is, man, this is my kid's foot. I usually sit in Mervyn's and worry about the price tag, but here's my kid's foot getting, getting sized for a new pair of shoes. You know what? This will be their shoes probably until we come back next year, if that. And it begins to be a humbling thing and a meaningful thing. And what you realize is you get to say I love you without speaking a word of Spanish. And there's just a real clear picture that that just translates cultures, doesn't it? You don't come in and do it as some weird stage thing. This is a real need. And that was the foot-washing thing that I'll never forget. <clears throat> Jesus wasn't showing us his mission, that of coming and saying, I'm all about feet and washing feet. We know this because this wasn't <laughs> a big part of his message. What he was saying was, I have come to you as a humble servant. Go and be the same. John Stott, who's a commentary writer, has this quote in here that's really fantastic. I do not think it would be an exaggeration to say that if there is no humble service in our lives, nothing comparable to Christ washing the apostles' feet, we could hardly qualify as disciples of Jesus. So then that begs the question, and that's what we're going to hang out on the rest of our time, is how about us? How are we supposed to wash? What does it look like to wash one another's feet? In your bulletins, too, I have some examples of, of uh, biblical janitors, and they're all through there. Just start reading through the Bible and you will find that this idea of service and lowlyhood is in there of those who followed Christ. The early church was known for that and characterized by that. We shouldn't glorify them and put them way up on a pedestal and think they did it perfect because a lot of the New Testament is written to come in and untangle things that people had done as they tried to follow Christ and most of it was selfishness. Hey, you guys are doing this. Stop doing that. That's not what we had in mind with this. Hey, this is not the way church happens. Hey, this over here, stop that. So they didn't have it down perfect. But you know what? Read through the New Testament. Find some other examples that you look to. What I want to do this morning is um, look at this verse 15. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Many of you have been to Yosemite, and Yosemite is one of my favorite places. It's just an incredible place that we get, happen to get to live near. And um, there's this one lake that we go to when we go to Yosemite probably almost every time. And it's, it's an interesting place because it's, um, it's super accessible, very easy to get to. Um, a lot of people go there because it's so easy to get to. Um, and it's called Mirror Lake, and it looks like this. And if you go up to Mirror Lake and look at it, what's kind of remarkable is... is um, if you pull back and think about it for a second, 
he realized that Mirror Lake is not a very big lake. Um, it's not really all that beautiful of a lake on its own. If you look closely at the water, there's just some stuff floating in it, and it's just kind of a regular run-of-the-mill lake. And yet, if you lift your gaze from looking at the lake in kind of close detail and you look around, I'll tell you what you see. You see a painter over here studying Mirror Lake and painting it. And you see professional photographers with lenses, you know, as long as your leg, you know, sitting there getting just the right shot. And you see all these people standing around Mirror Lake marveling at it. What's so cool about Mirror Lake is that it's photographed. It's looked at with awe, not because of the lake itself. The lake itself is a very ordinary run-of-the-mill lake. But Mirror Lake reflects the glory around it. It takes pictures. Right to the right of this picture is Half Dome. So if you get just the right shot, you're getting Half Dome reflected off this lake. This shot that I took is just looking you know, kind of down the, down the canyon. And I thought about this whole area of service. That you and I, that this church ought to be about very normal, ordinary, non-spectacular acts of love, acts of service. In essence, if you will, ordinary run-of-the-mill lake stuff. We're not a special church because we have the coolest lighting system in the world. It's very ordinary. It's very plain. It's very simple. It's fairly non-spectacular. But isn't it true that us as a church, as a community of believers, in doing these very simple, small service acts, could begin to reflect the glory of the one that we're doing it for? And the greatness of Jesus is seen because of the simple acts of service that we do. It's almost exactly like Mirror Lake. People would stand up and take notice. We're told that we'll be known by our love. That's what 1 John says. They'll know that you're my followers. They'll know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. Not, not spectacular in and of itself, but reflective of the greatness. I love 1 Corinthians 1.26. It says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And what I would throw out to you this morning is this. I think if you'll take the rest of what I'm going to lay out for you here and you'll take this passage and you'll begin to live it out and say, Lord, even if I thought I've lived this out for a long time, awaken me. Call me to deeper waters. Help me to live it out in a way I've never lived this out before. I would venture to guess that God would begin to be glorified in this place. And by that, I don't mean this building. I mean in this community of believers that people would start to pull out their long lens and go, this is beautiful. This is worth painting. This is worth stopping and looking at. I want to know what's going on. It's going to draw a crowd because we'd be reflecting the simple service that God asks us to. In the time remaining, I've got six blanks for you in your, in your outlines. These are just six categories to get us started. Kind of big areas of life that you could start thinking about. How do we wash one another's feet? How do you wash someone's feet? What does that look like? The first fill in the blank is the area of the physical. There are physical needs. Anytime a group of people live together, there's physical needs that, that, that pop up all over the place. Rich Henderson, who, um, who's sitting right over here, uh, heads up Love, Inc., Love in the Name of Christ for Santa Clara County. And I love that Rich is in our church because I get to have kind of a close uh, working relationship with him. I get to hear probably a little bit more closely than other pastors do um, about some of the neat things that are going on. But, um, but Rich sent me some slides this week that I just thought were so cool because they kind of, they kind of be begin to basically lay out some of these physical needs that, that Love, Inc. tries to meet. And um, what I love about Love, Inc. is they work through the local church and try to meet people who are willing to serve and want to serve with needs in the community that need serving, right? So here it is. He just put some 2008 results. And uh, there's some numbers guy who's just all giddy over this, I'm sure. Uh, but he's like, 181 rides given. You know, and people, so, my brother loves this stuff. But uh, anyway, 24 people, you know, 24 moves, 51 home repairs, 19 yards maintained. All these different things. 
And these were just needs met, tangible needs met. And we're going to quantify it. We're going to look at it. We're not just going to kind of feel good about ourselves and think we do things here and there. We're going to look at this. How many tangible physical needs were met? Here's how NBC is playing a part. He kind of broke this down for our church. The very last one, he said almost 6% of Love, Inc. Santa Clara County services were done by Neighborhood Bible Church in 2008. You know what? That's awesome, you guys. Kel called me up after a board meeting one time. He's one of our elders. He said, Dave, you've got to hear this, dude. And we're always doing this to each other, like just little God story, you know, yay God stories. He's like, you know, here's how many people in Neighborhood Bible Church served. Like we're just re- were recorded as serving through Love, Inc. this year. And it was totally encouraging to me. Because there's all kinds of stuff going on not associated with, 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 with Love, Inc. And that is just super exciting to me. That's exactly what we're talking about. There are physical needs all around you. And part of it is just praying for the grace to see them. And then praying for the, the selflessness to act on them. And just begin to, to move on some of these. So physical foot washing is going and taking your time and just giving it to someone who needs to be moved. It's considering one another is more important than yourself. In fact, really, it's just thinking about, would I like this to be done? Yeah, I think I would. (laughs) And going and meeting someone's needs. There's a whole second way, and that is emotionally. Physical needs, physical foot washing is one. A second area is emotional. (coughs) Excuse me. This is a picture of Judy. Judy's a friend of mine who went to New Orleans with us two summers ago. And while many of us were doing physical needs in New Orleans, there's still a ton of just physical needs to go on in New Orleans. And so we're there, you know, scrubbing stuff and scraping old mold off and doing all kinds of fun stuff, whacking weeds and whatever needs to be done physically. Judy uh, went out, I think by accident almost, the first day on kind of a, a little mission of compassion. And Judy is a feeler. Judy is one who comes alongside of you, looks inside your soul and just goes, how are you doing? And when she asks that, you just go, man, I better stop what I was going to do because she really wants to know. I'm going to talk to Judy here. And as you tell a story of, to, 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 to Judy about an excitement, I mean, she's right there with you. If you tell Judy a story about pain and hurt and some concern, she's right there with you in a way that few people possess. What was so encouraging is that Judy came back after day one, and with tears in her eyes, she's telling us about some people that she met out cruising the neighborhood. And she's got one of those personalities that just talks to anyone. And she just had the opportunity to go and meet people where they are. You know how close to the surface? This was a couple years after Katrina. You know how close to the surface people's pain and hurt was? It was this deep. We had a male woman come walking by. And we just said, hey, can we pray for you? And she broke down. and like, yeah, let's pray. I mean, it's just there. There was hurt and devastation. So Judy would come back after the rest of us had been working our tail off in the hot, muggy, August, New Orleans heat. And we would just get refreshed because we're like, man, as we're cleaning up and whacking weeds, Judy's out there ministering to people's souls and just emotionally washing their feet, coming alongside them and saying, you need to know that someone in this country desperately cares for you and wants to hear your story and wants to just cry with you. And Judy just did that in an amazing way. Some of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about because you're wired that same way. Go and wash people's feet that way. That is such a huge ministry especially in times of hurt and and catastrophe. There's a third way, and that's spiritually. How do you spiritually wash someone's feet? Acts 20, let me just read a couple of verses for you. Acts 20, verse 20 says this. You know that this is Paul, by the way, talking to the Ephesian elders. He says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly... And from house to house. And by the way, that's the way Neighborhood Bible Church is set up. What we're doing right here is publicly what Jonathan and a crew of people did last night and this weekend at the God Talk booth at Oak Ridge is public preaching. 
what Clink sometimes does with open-air preaching is public preaching. But it's just caring enough to, to give people the gospel, to share people the hope of, that we have in Christ. And what's going on here this morning is something that's a result of prayer. I always pray. I say, God, I don't want to pray to tickle people's ears. Far be it from me to pray so that I would receive praise. I want to give. I want to give you what, they, what, what you have for them, no matter what. If it's awkward for me, if it's hard for me, if whatever. I, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of preaching we want to have happen from people at Neighborhood Bible Church. That's publicly. And then house-to-house is just coming alongside people. Community groups is a house-to-house model. It's saying that we want to come in and, and also not hesitate to teach what you need to hear and be with you life on life. And that's what Paul was saying here. He wanted to wash their feet publicly in a large forum way like this and house to house. Verse 31, he says this, remember, he's calling to mind their, their, to their mind, remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Can't you just imagine Paul there just begging with his people, pleading with his people, with tears in his eyes. Please don't go after this false teacher. That's not, that's not what Christ had for us. Please change this way of, of your life. It's leading you to death. That's all it will breed. That's the only kind of fruit that will come from this. I beg of you, please don't do this. And that's the work of ministers of the gospel of Christ. It's to come alongside people. And sometimes it's really loving and, and emotional and all feel good. And sometimes it's not at all feel good. And it's just saying, please don't do this. You are in the wrong. And it's that faithful are the wounds of a friend. And you come alongside with tears in your eyes. And you have the courage and love to just say, I want to spiritually wash your feet here. And I know I'm risk, I risk being rejected by you for doing it. But Paul was an amazing example of that. How can you do that? Here's, here's one. Is one is just to, to mentor someone. And most people go, I'm not a mentor. I don't know what that even means. You know what that means? We're shifting gears in children's ministry to where we need small group leaders in children's ministry. Sitting around with a group of four or five kids and walking them through a text like this of what does it look like to wash one another's feet? What, what do you think it means to serve? And just being a good listener. You know what it takes to be a mentor? It doesn't mean that you have to have all the answers and be there and be all that so they can achieve to be just like you. You know what it takes to be a mentor? It takes real intentionality to say, man, I want this person to succeed. I want this person to be all that God has for them to be. And I'm going to prayerfully ask the right questions and just try to, and just try to push them toward where God wants them to be. It takes being a really good listener and it takes being a selfless person who says this time that we're going to spend together isn't about me. It's all about you. How can I build you up in Christ? I guarantee you, our youth group will grow to the size of its leadership. If we had just been in there trying to lead and grow a middle school group, we'd have X number of kids. Because there's only one Ben. Ben wisely has gone after some people and said, we don't want volunteers to come in and hang out with youth. That could be counterproductive. We want foot-washing servant leaders who love Jesus and who can tolerate kids. No, I'm kidding. Um, but but who, who will come in and serve the kids. That means that when you're playing a game, it's not about you winning. It's about building up kids. It's in a small group time, not hearing yourself talk and spout off all your amazing wisdom, but drawing out what's going on in those kids. That's a way to spiritually wash someone's feet. Some of you are prayer warriors, and you spiritually wash the feet of your community group leader because you've just taken it upon yourself to respond to God and say, I'm going to pray for this person. Some of you pray for lost sheep. You've never forgotten about them. Everyone else has forgotten about them, and they've wandered off, but you never have. And so you just keep crying out to God on your knees day and night with tears, saying, Lord, please have mercy on their soul. Please bring them back. Whatever it takes, that's spiritually washing someone's feet. Here's a fourth way is the area of social. You know you can socially wash someone's feet? I married someone who went out of her way because of who she was to look for the person who had no friends and go be their friend. That was so attractive to me as I was dating Becky. I love to see as a youth pastor... 
I absolutely, one of the biggest thrills for me would be when I would see someone who's engaged in conversation, they get to see their friends for the first time in a few days, and it's all about social, and they spot someone, walk in the door that no one has ever seen before, and all 50 of us know it except that person. And this person in the in-group, chatting with their friends, excuses themselves, makes a beeline for that person to say, Hi, I'm so-and-so. What's your name? And they immediately ensure that that person feels welcome and normal in this place. Man, that's being like Jesus. That's socially washing that person's feet. You could all sit around and wait for other people to do it and go, There's a new person over there. Someone should go talk to them. Man, that'd be really lousy to be them. So anyways, what's going on? You know, we could just keep going on. I love to see that here. That people come and, and, and are, are met with a friendly smile. I wonder if you go into social settings and you are praying and you are trusting in the statement that Jesus made that it really is better to give than receive. So that you go to that party, you go to that function, you go to that wedding, you go to that church service, you go to community group. And you're not saying they're going, I sure hope this works out for, well for me. I sure hope people notice this new piece of clothing. I sure hope this, 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 and this. But you're going, Lord, how can I serve someone tonight at community group? Please let me be a your instrument to just go and socially wash someone's feet tonight. Some of you are excellent at not waiting for those to trickle across your path, but seeking out the unlovely the unlovable, and going out of your way to go and grab them. I'm going to brag on them because they're not here tonight, but we have a, or today, but we have a couple in our church that takes a couple of hours on Sunday mornings to bring a lot of, um, of um, handicapped people to church most every Sunday. And um, to sit down with the Donatos and to just hear their story is just remarkable because they just started by following the obedience of Jesus and saying, man, uh, what if the only reason someone didn't come to church is because they're in a wheelchair and they're a quadriplegic and they can't get to church and their family's not believers, they're not going to take them to church? Wouldn't it be the right thing to do to, to go and get them, even if it took a little bit of time out of your you know, Sunday morning? You're going to have to give up bagel and coffees at the coffee shop before church to go do that? Yeah, that seems like the right thing to do. We should go do that. And then to just hear their story unfold is to say, man, sure it would be neat if they got to go to Disneyland. And so they've taken them to Disneyland. Sure would be awesome if they got to go to camp. So they took them to camp. And on and on it went. And I just sat there and was humbled to hear simple acts of service that God just kept saying, yep, you're obeying me, you're following me. He told a story about <clears throat> holding a 20-year-old guy as he's um, basically betting him for the night, really putting on diapers for the night. And he said as he's holding this guy, he said he's just shaking, going. He said he just felt like he heard the voice of Christ saying, you've, you know, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you're doing it to me. And that's why they do that. That's why they wash feet. Out of devotion to the Savior. Out of just mimicking the Savior. Socially. Fifthly is the whole area of words. <clears throat> you know you can verbally wash people's feet? Uh, Luke 6.45 says this, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, his mouth speaks. Isn't it super meaningful when someone comes to you and they're not just always spouting off little trivial things and so a compliment from them means nothing because they just, you know, you've caught them talking behind your back after giving you a compliment, whatever. But someone who comes and gives a well-deserved, well-meaning compliment, that can be just a foot washing where people just come and say, I want you to know when you do this, it absolutely brightens my day. It's absolutely a huge thing when you do this. Just thanking people, being the person that turns around and says, thank you for doing this. Writing someone who sets things up, who does small acts of service and just saying, I want you to know I notice and I thank you for it. 
Proverbs 12, 18 says, Reckless words pierce like a sword. Man, that's true. And we wield our sword pretty carelessly sometimes. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. It's like a bomb to have the right word at the right time with sincerity of heart. We did this exercise one time as a youth team at the end of a retreat. And it was um, a time to go around the entire team. And basically we picked one person. We said, we're just going to say one thing we appreciate about this person. And everyone's going to go around and say it. And then we went to the next person. And then the next. And then the next. And what you begin to realize is there's a challenge in having your feet washed, isn't there? It was really awkward to sit there and have people say things. But this happened more than a decade ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday, because this doesn't go on enough. You know how long we sat there and did that? Like three hours. Went by like that. We just sat there and washed one another's feet. And it was such a community-building kind of a thing to just sit there and, and think, man, what do I appreciate about this person? You know what? I wanted to tell you. I, I don't know why I never tell you. Why, why don't we do that? And so to verbally wash people's feet. How about in the area of deeds? The mark of a maturing Christian is a life characterized by giving rather than receiving. If in the year 2010 you realize that you are giving more than you're receiving, that's a great mark of the fact that God's growing things in you that you can't produce on your own. That's the mark of a growing Christian. 1 Timothy 5, 9-10, uh, there's some instruction about widows. And who gets to be on the list, basically, for social security? Who gets to be cared for? There was an actual protocol for this. You ready for this? Listen to this. Verse 9. No widow may be put on the list, that's the list of being cared for, unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is, catch this, well known for her good deeds, such as, bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. I love the end catch-alls that the Bible puts in there. By the way, the last thing you should be about is that you are devoted to all kinds of good deeds. Isn't that that the kind of, of older woman you would want to model your life after if you're a woman, and an older man if you're a man? To devote yourself to good deeds. We talked last week about this whole notion of share and that we were created by God to do good deeds. I want you to uh, look at this quote. I think I put this in your notes as well. It's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. I think that is so true. I want to have the band come on up, and I'm going to just close with asking this question. What about you? What about you and your service? Are you one that just cares about the poor generally, or do you care about someone individually and have made it your mission to come alongside and stand with that person? Do you feel that divorce is hurtful and is tearing families apart? And do you just think about that as a general category? Or are you coming alongside of a single mom and saying, man, whatever I can do to help you as you get off of work and try to meet the needs of these kids, I'm there for you. And I'll stick like glue through this. I want to help. In Richard Foster's book... um, Celebration of discipline kind of distinguishes between choosing to be a servant versus choosing to serve. Those who choose to serve are still in control. They're still in charge of things. Choosing to serve is saying, I'll give up one Saturday a month, and I'll go do that. I'll take up the towel one Saturday a month. And that's different than choosing to be a servant. Choosing to be a servant is taking on that role no matter when the time comes, no matter how long it, it, it takes, and it just says, I'm going to be a servant in this. Choosing to serve, you can walk away from that and feel really put out. Oh, they were pretty ungrateful tonight. 
Sometimes people who choose to serve come, and they'll dispense their gifts whether the person wants it or not, even if it's kind of awkward and inappropriate. I've seen this with some trips up to the, the homeless in San Francisco, where someone comes and they go, well, here we are, we're all charged up to do it. Let's, let's dispense some goodwill and blessing. And they're not reading the situation whatsoever. And they're trying to almost just cram either four spiritual laws or a blanket on them. And they're like, just listen to them. They don't need a blanket. They don't even want a blanket. But those who are choosing to serve, they're, they're there to serve. They want to get it out. You see how selfish that is? How, self, how me-focused that is? Choosing to be a servant says, if someone's going to take advantage of you, in fact, people will take advantage of you at times. Absolutely. But people might step on my toes. Yeah, they probably will step on your toes. People might be ungrateful. They most likely will be ungrateful. But as you watch the life of Christ, you see this played out. Richard Foster also says this, the flesh whines against service. I think that's so true. He goes on to say this, though. It screams against hidden service. What if you start to do things and no one knows about it except your Heavenly Father? Jesus said, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know why? I want to reward you. Let me be reward enough. I at least want to go home and convince my wife she married someone pretty cool. What if you just keep it to yourself and say, Lord, it's between you and me, and I'm going to take utter joy in just serving you. Neighborhood Bible Church, let's go out and serve our neighbor. Let's be a place that's known for serving our neighbor. Let's not look to justify our neighbor, quantify who that is, but let's willingly take the role of a servant. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I bring that up because I think the best place to start is in your own home. If it's not your job to take the trash out this week, take the trash out this week. Probably the hardest person to serve is your younger brother or sister. That can be probably the most challenging place to start, isn't it? Because you have rights and authority by birth order. And you lay those down and say, it starts at home. And then move it to this home, to your church family, and begin to serve one another. Jesus takes it all the way to saying, serve your enemies. God gives good to the wicked. Do the same. We're going to sing this song right now and, um, and then wrap up. And let me just do so with a prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for music and your word and loving acts of service, God, that have so ministered to me, that have so encouraged my faith. God, people who with no regard for themselves have chosen to wash my feet. I pray, God, that we would go and do what you've modeled for us, what you are doing for us, God. I thank you so much for the encouraging signs of life that are going on in this place that blow my mind, and there's so much more, I'm sure, that I don't even know about. And that's the way it ought to be. God, help us to, out of love and devotion to you, serve wholeheartedly and be what we say our name is, a neighborhood Bible church that serves this community and is a light. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Jesus talking to one of the seven churches in Revelation. And um, I just want you to catch... um, what, what this church was about. Listen to this. He says this, I know your deeds. Jesus knows our deeds. And he knew this church's deeds. Listen to how he raves about them. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You have found them false. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. It was a church that was all about good deeds, and spiritually they were solid as well. Many of you know what's coming, but catch this next part. Yet I hold this against you. And then he lays the bomb on him. He says, you have forsaken your first love. It's important that we end with this in mind, because if we go at this, if we go after good deeds, if we go after perseverance and enduring hardship and digging our heels in and getting this thing done, we can turn into the first neo-pharisaical church of Branham Lane. 
Lord, we're just all prideful about all the good things we've done. It must be motivated out of love for him. Jesus came out of love. Jesus washed feet out of love. Jesus died out of love. So let's walk out of here not forsaking our first love in this. Let's have both these elements. We better have some good deeds. We better have perseverance. We better endure hardship in the name of Christ. But let's do it not forsaking our first love. Amen? Two quick announcements. One is that Tuesday night, uh, middle school families, we have a family game night every fifth Tuesday. Um, just a great way to come and bring some of your neighbor uh, families in. Also at 12.30, Jonathan uh, Hurley and the team will be in room seven for just an info meeting about Mexico. If you're even thinking about going to Mexico, come and grab a packet. Come and fire off some questions. It'll probably just be about a half hour, 45 minute uh, meeting just to kind of give you a taste of what's going to happen uh, this summer. So um, anyways, I love you and looking forward to being with you next week. Next week we have a baptism. It's Palm Sunday. Uh, it's going to be an exciting time. Children, you're in with us the whole time, and we're super excited about that. So you're dismissed. Uh, we'll see you next Sunday, if not before.